Our Father, we just take time to thank you for the good shepherd that you sent to save us, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is never failing, he is everlasting, he is the shepherd of our soul, and it doesn't matter if you bring us to the mountaintops or you lay us low in the valley because our shepherd has never left our side. Lord, we can be content, we can be satisfied knowing that we have everything in Jesus. We lack for nothing if we have him, and so it doesn't matter what is stripped from us in this world. Nothing can take us out of Christ's hand. We are safe in his arms, and we are satisfied by him. Lord, we thank you for that. Please forgive us when we look to other things to satisfy us, when we raise up idols within our own hearts. Father, may you always uh, be at work in our lives, uh, prying those idols out of our hands, revealing them to us, granting us repentance from those things, and helping us to be fixing our hope on Jesus alone, looking for satisfaction and contentment and joy in Jesus alone. Lord, he is our God, not these other things. Help us to um, behave in like manner, Lord. May our actions support our confession that he is our God, no other. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, we're looking at verses 7 through 11 this morning, and I'll go ahead and I'll read this passage for us. Hebrews 13, verses 7 through 11. The preacher writes, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. None of us likes to expect to receive one thing and then we end up receiving something far less than what was promised. An example might be buying a car from a dealer who promises you that this vehicle is perfectly reliable. And of course, when you take it out for a test run, it drives fine. But then when you bring it home, shortly thereafter, you realize that you've spent thousands of dollars on an immobile hunk of metal and that there's no hope of making lemonade from this lemon that life gave you. Or going in for a surgery that was intended to correct one problem, but actually all that was accomplished was the creation of several more problems. And nowhere is this more tragic than when it comes to the things of eternity. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles. 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Imagine expecting heaven with such confidence because of your many showy works that you presumed you had done for God, only to find out, standing at the gate itself, that you are barred from entering there. And there is no opportunity for you to remedy your terrifying situation. Talk about receiving something you did not expect. This is what is at stake when it comes to persevering in our faith, persevering in Christ. Each person in this room, and indeed every person on the planet, is staking their eternity on something. And by the time we reach the end of our lives, we want to be confident that the ground that we are standing on is bedrock, not shifting sand. And that somewhere along the way, someone did not trick us into stepping foot off of the rock and onto the shifting sand. We want to be sure. But what must we be doing to be sure? How can we guard against someone deceiving us? We know, of course, we sung it, the Lord is sovereign. He will not let us be lost. But the scriptures also call us to exercise certain responsibilities. God uses certain means to protect his people. And we find some of those means here in this passage. How can we be sure that someone will not come along and trick us and carry us away from Christ? Well, first, we must be following tested leaders. We must be following tested leaders. We see this in verse 7 when he says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. We're commanded here to remember our leaders, to thoughtfully meditate upon how they lived their lives for the purpose of imitating them watching how they lived so that we, in turn, can live the way they lived. And there's a couple clues in this verse that tell us that the preacher is referring not to existing leaders, but leaders who have since died. That the the congregation is to be looking to these leaders who have gone before them and who have died. They've run the race in full. He says, for, for example, um, in the past tense, he says that these are people who spoke the word of God to you. Not they are speaking the word of God to you, they spoke the word of God to you, past tense. And then he also calls on us to consider the result of their conduct. King James says, considering the end of their conversation, that is, their way of life. The Christian Standard Bible says, observe the outcome of their lives. It is good to have older brothers in the faith to look up to and to model our lives after. And the preacher in this verse, he gives us a checklist of who our heroes in the faith ought to be. First, he says they should be those who spoke the word of God. They did not preach themselves, they preached Christ. They did not preach their own ideas about how life should be lived. They preached God's word and his instructions on how we ought to live our lives. Those are the guys we should be looking up to, not the guys who come every Sunday and they've spun some yarn in their minds throughout the week and they've got a fresh story to give to you. No, someone who brings the Bible to you each and every week. 
Second, our heroes of the faith, according to this verse, should have lived lives of faithfulness, that that the end of their life was something worthy of imitation. They needed to be faithful. They needed to have demonstrated complete faithfulness. And that necessarily means that they're dead because you ultimately cannot know for sure if someone is going to die well, if someone is going to die in the faith until they actually have died well, until they actually have died in the faith. Back to the race analogy of chapter 12, there's no marathon runner who looks up to someone who's never finished a marathon. For example, if you were thinking about getting into running marathons and I was, happened to sign up and you said, I'm going to watch Josh and see how he does it. And then you saw me get on the starting line and then the gun went off and you saw me just take off. And the first hundred meters, I'm just running at a dead sprint. You would see me and you'd think, wow, he is setting quite a pace. I want to run like that doesn't matter. He slacked off in certain areas of his life. I mean, just yesterday I saw him rolling out of McDonald's, and I know that that is a common habit in this man's life. But look at how he runs. I must be able to do that as well. I'm going to train the way he trained, and then I'll be able to run the way he runs. But that would be a mistake if you only paid attention to the first hundred meters of my life, of my running of this race. Because if you were to check back on me a mile into the race, you'd find me lying dead in the road, leaving 25 unfinished miles left to run. And if you based your training off of me, you are not going to finish the race either. No, you want to pattern your training after individuals who actually have run the full 26.2 miles. They've trained in such a way that enabled them to run the whole race. And it's easy for us to become fanboys or fangirls of the latest evangelical leader, treating them like celebrities, only to have our hearts dashed and our faith shaken when they go astray or when they fall away. Don't imitate the guys who have not finished the race yet. You may find that the way they are running will actually lead to their disqualification rather than their victory. And if you run the way they are running, you might find yourself ending up in the same spot. Instead, we need to imitate the guys who have lived and who have died being faithful to Christ. If you run the race of faith like they ran it, you will be able to finish the race like they finished it. So we need to Make sure we are following tested leaders, not just anybody. Second, what else do we need to do to make sure no one deceives us, no one blows us off course? Secondly, we need to make sure that we are fastened to a trustworthy Lord. Fastened to a trustworthy Lord. We see this in verse 8 when the preacher, he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul, he's instructing the believers in Corinth on how to love their brothers and sisters. 
by not causing each other to stumble. And he's teaching them on how to make the most of every opportunity to proclaim the gospel, to be an effective witness. And he holds himself up to that congregation as an example to be followed. And he ends that discussion in chapter 11 and verse 1, where he says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Ultimately, a leader is worth imitating, worth following, whether he's dead or alive, only insofar as that leader is imitating Christ, is following Christ. Jesus Christ is the standard that we should judge all leaders by. And that goes for anyone who stands behind this pulpit, including myself. How can we know if a leader is someone that we should be imitating, that we should be following? Well, he's worth imitating only if he is faithful to the gospel of Christ. He's worth imitating only if he is faithful to live the way Jesus commands him to live. Jesus is the unchangeable God. And he is our eternally faithful high priest. And as such, he is always the same, which means the standard by which we are to judge our leaders does not change. The standard doesn't change with people's opinion, and it doesn't change as culture changes. We cannot say, you know, the society, they really want us to have someone who talks this way, who looks this way, who acts this way. You know, we don't send a canvas out to the community and say, what do you want the pastor of this church to look like? And then say, that's the kind of guy we're going to get. No, instead we must say, Jesus taught certain things. Jesus acted a certain way and he commands his people to act a certain way. So we need to find leaders who will be faithful to what Jesus taught and who will strive to live life the way he commands it to be lived. And if I or any of your elders or any future pastor or future elder ever begins to stop living or teaching according to that standard, then you need to call for their or my removal. And if we don't step down from that office, you need to pray about leaving and finding another church where you can submit yourselves to a leadership that does seek to conform itself to the standard of Christ. Jesus does not change, so the standard must never change, and it does never change. So you need to be discerning people about who you listen to and who you submit yourselves to. Jesus is the standard, and Jesus doesn't change. So we need to make sure we are being fastened to a trustworthy Lord, that we are standing on Christ. Christ is the rock, the bedrock. We need to stand upon him. Thirdly, what do we need to do to make sure we are not deceived? We must be fighting the lies, fighting the lies. We see this in verse 9 when he says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. 
for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. We must be fighting the lies. When the Apostle Paul was on one of his missionary journeys, he came to Ephesus. And when he got to Ephesus, he happened to find a handful of disciples. And God used Paul to establish a church there. And he spent three years teaching the believers the word of God. He was being the kind of leader that the preacher is calling us to remember, to look to. He was speaking the word of God to them. And eventually, after he had established that church, Paul continued on in his missionary journey. And after some time, after having left, he was coming back through the area, and he called the Ephesian elders to himself to say goodbye and to give them a final exhortation. And I want you to, to look in, the, in the, the theme of fighting lies. I want you to look at Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders. You'll find that in Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20. And I want to drop down kind of in the middle of what he's saying to these guys. Acts chapter 20, verse 25. Paul says, And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. You see, Paul knew that false teachers Wolves, those telling lies, would rise up among them. Paul exhorted these elders to be on guard against those things, to contend for the faith, to fight the lies with the truth. And it's no different today. This is a reality that the church has always had to deal with. We have to expect it, even from within our own selves. We always think of somebody outside coming in. But even from within our own selves, this can happen and does happen. We have to expect that. We have to watch out for it. And this is important because there are many lies, many lies. He says in verse 9, he says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. It was no less the case in the church that the preacher was writing to, and it will be no less the case in this church here in New Woodstock. We are commanded to not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. We have to be on guard. There are many lies. They can come from any direction that you can think of. They can come dressed up in so many different ways, taking on so many different forms, things you wouldn't have even expected. And notice, these are teachings that can carry you away. 
It's hard to carry someone who's fighting you tooth and nail. It's easy to carry someone who's just letting you take them away. If a false teaching is going to carry you away, it's not going to be obvious. It's going to be subtle. I'm not worried about the guy down in Erieville who has the vegan church. I don't think any of you are going to get sucked in by that. But it's the subtle teachings, the false teachings that can carry someone away. Criminals who specialize in producing counterfeit money, they don't, and when I say vegan church, I'm not putting down vegans if we have any vegans. My wife was a vegan. Thankfully, she changed when I married her. But he's saying it's a sin to kill any animal to eat meat. That's what I'm referring to. I want to clarify that. That's pretty obvious. But false teaching is subtle. Criminals who specialize in producing counterfeit money, they don't walk into a store and try to make a purchase with a wad of cash that they yanked out of a Monopoly board game. No, they've tried really hard to make the counterfeit bill look just like the real thing. A false teacher is not going to walk up to you and say, Hi, Satan sent me. Please follow me. No, he's going to try and look as close to a real follower of Christ as he can. But there's going to be some essential doctrine of the faith that he's tampered with. You might give him a doctrinal exam, and he might pass. He might get a 99 on it. But he will have twisted something, even just one thing about the Savior. He'll have twisted something about salvation. Or he'll, he will have twisted something about Scripture that places him outside of biblical Christianity. He's going to look and talk just like us. Paul warned the Corinthian believers about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. He's saying they're so easily duped and sucked in to follow a different Christ, to follow a different spirit, a different gospel. Dropping down to verse 13, speaking of these false teachers that are hoodwinking them, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Part of why we encouraged you last week to be regularly devoting yourselves to the reading of Scripture 
is to guard you against false teaching. Because you're not going to be able to recognize a counterfeit gospel if you don't have a firm handle on the true gospel. You need to be always examining what is being taught, even from me. I'm saying, check up on me. Don't just swallow what I'm telling you. There are many lies. But also, at the same time, there's just one lie. There's really only one lie. And this Hebrew congregation was facing a new packaging of this one lie. There's many lies out there, but in a very real way, there's only one. And this one lie has been repackaged a million different ways. But the heart of this lie is always the same. And the lie is this. Jesus is not enough. God's grace and salvation is not enough. His word is not enough. That's the lie. This was the lie that these Hebrew believers, as I said, were facing. It's the lie that each one of us faces a thousand different ways every single day. And this lie is as old as the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Because the serpent told them this very lie. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 3. This passage is so foundational to understanding false teaching. Genesis chapter 3. The fall of man. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I want to just point out three different things the serpent deceived this couple with. First, he said that they could not trust what God had said, which is another way of saying God's word is not enough. A second thing he mentioned, not in so many words, but basically saying that the everlasting life that God was supplying to them through the tree of life and the incredible bounty of all the things that God had given them to enjoy was incomplete. They lacked just one more thing. God didn't do enough for them. He didn't give them enough. In other words, God's salvation, the life we have in him, is not enough. And third, the serpent said that God was withholding something from them and that if they would just reach out and take it, they could be as gods themselves. 
In other words, God himself was not enough for them. They'd be better off being their own gods. Christ is not enough. That's the lie. And we see this in this verse. They're being sucked in to some kind of ritualistic religion when he says it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. And in this, these three verses, it's difficult to know what exactly the preacher is referring to. I'm, I've struggled to know how to clearly explain this. Um, it seems that there was some kind of teaching involving food that was threatening them. Likely it was a teaching related to the old covenant feasts and sacrifices, which involved meals that the Jews would partake of in accordance with old covenant law. And when these Hebrew believers had become Christians, they had likely been ostracized from their community. Like the blind man, he got kicked out of the synagogue when he believed in Jesus. So these believers, they were most likely cut off from their community. They were also, through that, probably cut off from the old covenant rituals that was required in order to fully obey the Mosaic law. And so it may be that these believers are caught in a dilemma because on the one hand, we know Rome was seeking to persecute them for their faith in Christ. And so they were being tempted to go to Judaism in order to escape that persecution because Judaism was still legal. But the problem was that the, the, the Jews would not accept them back into their community as long as they still clung to Christ. So they are stuck be, between a rock and a hard place. And they're being tempted to look for safety somewhere other than in Jesus. To them, it's starting to look like God's grace and Christ is not enough. And so they're teetering on the edge of replacing Christ with just empty ritual. And so the preacher reminds them that physical food cannot strengthen their hearts. Only God's grace can do that. And throughout the whole letter, including this passage, he's been reminding them that there is nothing under the old covenant that can complete them. Nothing under it that can satisfy them. Nothing about it that can redeem them. The blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse their consciences. The Levitical priests cannot bring them near to God. And the food from the sacrifices and the feasts cannot strengthen their hearts to endure the trials of this life. Apart from Christ, everything under the old covenant is just a cold, hollow husk because the old covenant itself was pointing to Christ. And without Christ, it's not worth anything. And for these people to trade Christ for the old covenant would be like me trading my wife for the shadow she casts on the ground. And this is what all kinds of false teaching does, including the teaching they were facing. It promises safety. It promises fulfillment. It promises contentment and salvation and happiness when, in fact, it cannot deliver on any of those things. False teaching, it only distracts you from the one who alone can be all of that to you. And we read in our uh, reading of the word earlier that Paul encountered this in the life 
of the believers at Colossae. He said, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And then he launches into this great discussion about all that they have in Jesus. And he's saying, don't trade all of that for some empty, silly philosophy. As Eve was standing in the middle of the garden, the serpent's lies had carried her away to the point that she began to view Eden like a prison instead of paradise. God was holding her back when, in fact, he had given her everything. They had never been more free. But Satan was saying, no, God's actually holding out on you. False teaching deceives us by getting us to view the biblical Christ as someone less than who he is. It tries to get us to see that the Jesus of the Bible is not worth living for, not worth dying for, that he's not quite enough. We need something extra. And in verses 10 and 11, the preacher seeks to correct that thinking. He says, we have an altar from which those, the Levitical priests, have no right to eat. He reminds them of the unspeakable privilege that they have in Jesus. Now, thinking about the Levitical priests, who were they? They were the most privileged people in all of Israel. Why were they so privileged? Because they, no one could get as close to God as they were able to get. They were able to eat meat from certain sacrifices that no one else was able to eat. However, there was one sacrificial offering that they were not allowed to eat from. And that was the, dan- the annual Day of Atonement sacrifice, Yom Kippur. They were not allowed to eat of that sacrifice. And it's pretty clear that that is what the preacher is referring to. He's kind of uh, holding the Day of Atonement and the sacrifice of Christ very closely together. And he's saying that we as believers, we have this altar that the Levitical priests could not eat from. And he's saying, why couldn't they not eat of it? Because, verse 11, the bodies of that sacrifice was burned outside the camp. They couldn't eat from this sacrifice. He's speaking of the annual Day of Atonement when the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice into the most holy place to offer on behalf of the priests and the whole nation. And we know that this Day of Atonement sacrifice was ultimately a foreshadowing of what? sacrifice of Christ. That's right. And so I want us to get what verse 10 is saying. The old covenant priests had no right to eat of the sacrifice of the day of atonement. Why? Well, let me get to that later. The day of atonement was what? It was just a copy. It was a shadow of what was to come. And these priests, they couldn't even eat from the copy. You understand? It was a shadow, but they didn't even have the right to eat from the shadow of the sacrifice, of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. But how do our privileges as believers in Christ compare? Are we more privileged or less privileged? The altar that we look to is the cross. And the sacrifice offered there for our sins was the sacrifice of the Son of God himself. And if the priests of the Old Covenant could not eat from the shadow of the Day of Atonement sacrifice, you would think, surely we cannot partake of the fulfillment of that shadow, can we? 
But on your own time, go and read John chapter 6, verses 51 to 58, where Jesus is speaking with the Jews and he's speaking to them of eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood. He is saying, partake of me and you will be saved. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have the right to eat from Christ's sacrifice. By faith, we receive the full benefit of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So why would these believers go back to the old covenant, which just had copies and shadows, and they couldn't even get uh, as close to God as they would need to through copies and shadows. But here in Christ, we are able to enter right into the throne room of God. We are able to partake of the sacrifice of Christ itself. Don't trade the privileges you have in Christ for empty ritual. To be carried away by false teaching is to allow yourself to be led away from the oasis, from the Eden, from the paradise you have in Christ in order to chase after a mirage in the desert. False teaching offers a cheap imitation. The real thing is in Christ. Let me quickly, as we close, name some of these counterfeits for you. You have the New Apostolic Reformation with their apostles and their promises of visions and their ecstatic experiences. You have Black Lives Matter and the social justice gospel with their promise of acceptance in society. You have Roman Catholicism, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Mormonism. You have the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses. You have Word of Faith's prosperity gospel with their promise of health, wealth, and prosperity. But these all offer cheap, hollow, dead imitations of what we all already possess in Christ. Don't let these cults or others like them defraud you of what you have in Christ. Christ is enough. You don't need anything more. Dive deeper into Christ. If you're not satisfied, it means you have not You have not even begun to taste of Christ. So dive into this book, dive into Christ, and you will find in him all that you could ever possibly want. He will satisfy you for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us to Christ, making him our Savior. Thank you for causing us to be born again and and thereby opening our blind eyes to see the emptiness of our sin, the the hollowness of all of the cheap tricks and thrills that this world is holding out to us and opening our eyes to the beauty and the glory and the fullness and the bounty of all that is in Christ, all that he is. He is life indeed. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is our peace with God. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, he is our God. Help us not to to look anywhere else. And Lord, any who are here who don't know him yet, may you cause them to know him. May you reveal to them the sufficiency of his sacrifice on the cross in paying for sins and in opening the way for sinners to be made right with God. May you grant them repentance and faith in him, the only one who can satisfy them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.